lived all their lives in a completely pagan society. And while there, were Jewish, uh, there was a Jewish community outside of Babylon city itself, they were right in the city, having, working like as, as, as government officials. They, they, they were separated from their culture, living for God in a godless world. But we need to complete Thessalonians first. And uh, so let's pray and then we'll begin. Lord Jesus, we acknowledge your authority. You are Lord. You are King. We don't make you that. God has made you that. But we settle our hearts to acknowledge that you have authority to rule our lives and you do so by speaking your word to us. You give us promises. You give us commands. You assure us of your great covenant of love and grace made by the blood of Christ. Help us now to receive your word like meek children receive milk from their mother, as the scripture says. So that you may be more honored in us, we pray. Amen. Well, since some weeks have gone by, this is the headline today, Live to Please God. Thessalonians. I need to give you a bit of background. Thessalonians was written... Uh, the two letters were written because the people there had been misled about the second coming of the Lord Jesus. First of all, there were some people saying uh, that if you died before Jesus returned, you'd miss out on eternal destiny. You've got to be alive when he comes or you won't get it. You won't, you won't see it. And, well, that was pretty upsetting, wasn't it? And then there were some saying, you've missed it already. He's come and we didn't, we didn't notice or, or you, know, we, you weren't ready. We weren't ready. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Um, and so these currents were going on, and Paul writes these two letters to fix those two things and settle them forever. So Paul can, corrects that teaching by saying that when the Lord appears on the last day, those who have died as Christians, the dead in Christ, will actually rise first to meet him. And then we who are still living will be transformed to be, meet the Lord in the air, and then we will be forever with the Lord. And Paul presents that day, which has a Greek word, the parousia, the day of the king's arrival. And I gave you some of the background in Greek and Roman history about how a king arrived at a town and people came out to meet him, you know, but then the, the troublemakers had to watch out because the king had come to sort them out. So the day of Christ's appearing in Scripture is always at the same day, the day when he's glorified in his saints, but when he brings judgment upon his enemies. And in the resurrection, there are two classes, two kinds in the resurrection. There's a resurrection to glory, and there's a resurrection to judgment, which happen on the same day. And the Lord Jesus himself taught us that the righteous and the wicked will continue on together to the end of the age. Then there will be a separation. So Paul adds then in his second letter something some things that must happen before the Lord returns. This man of lawlessness and this, uh, this rebellion. It's called apostasy, but it means rebellion. That's the Greek word, really. It means rebellion. This rebellion against the Lord and against his people, which will happen. Now, that is one of the most difficult passages in all Scripture. And I'm still not feeling that I've got one single viewpoint. I'm kind of got a bit of this and a bit of that going on in my thinking. And one, of the, one of these times I'll sort it out, but... Apologize for that, I gave you my best shot, but that's a very difficult passage. What I've made clear in the past, and particularly again more recently, is that I reject the notion of a secret rapture that happens before the last day. 
For the Lord Jesus clearly teaches us that he will raise us up. Everyone who lives and believes in him, he will raise us up on the... Got it, yes. So why do people say something else? I don't know. I I won't. I I can't go there. I also don't hold with a seven-year tribulation theory that's generally taught alongside that secret rapture. But I do understand that this gospel age, according to Revelation 20, will end with rebellion and with resistance to Christ and to his church. By the way, the rapture and the seven-year tribulation are part of a system of Bible interpretation called dispensationalism, which was unheard of until the middle 1800s. I'm not a dispensationalist. I do believe in the second coming of Jesus. I hope you know that. And the things I believe I present to you, they are actually historic, orthodox, and I do believe biblical. But if you want to explore those things some more, ask me. I'll give you some more material. I'll tell you what to read. I'll print some things out for you. But we're, we're kind of pretty much done on the, that prophetic or eschatological teaching from Thessalonians now. But either side of those, the, the, those corrective teachings about the second coming are practical teaching to us as to how we are to live as Christians in these last days. Last days happen when Jesus came and certainly by the time he's resurrected. So we're living in the last age of history. The gospel age, the kingdom age, the church age. We're in the last days, the last phase. How are we to live as people who have received the grace of God and yet we're still living in a a world which is mixture? The wickedness and the evil isn't going away. In fact, it will increase to the end of the age. So how do we live? Well, here's Thessalonians 4. We're going to read part of Thessalonians 4. Then we'll skip the teaching on the second coming. and pick up again in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Finally then, brothers, we ask and encourage you in the Lord Jesus that just as you have received from us how you must walk, I prefer the word live there. Walk Walk is an analogy of living. How you must walk or live and please God. Now that phrase stuck out to me like, like, like a bell was ringing. And I did all my work, which I usually do, do my thinking and writing and so on. And then I read the commentaries. And the commentaries said, this is the key phrase. I said, Hallelujah. I thought it was. <laughs> I, I thought it was too. This is the key phrase to everything that Paul says about how we are to behave ourselves. How we must live or walk and please God. But then he says, encouragingly, as you are doing, do so even more. It's not like they haven't started, but keep going. Like Hershel was saying, keep going this morning. For you know what commands we gave you through the Lord Jesus. How we must live and please God. We find similar statements in other places. In Colossians, um, Paul says, he's praying that they would be filled with all wisdom and spiritual understanding, so that they may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. The world says, please yourself. The gospel, wisdom, says, no, please God. Yeah? We're so used to hearing what the world is shouting at us all the time. Look after yourself. You be you. You know? Don't care about anybody else. This rampant individualism and ego... It goes along. Fully pleasing to him. Romans 12 says, bring your bodies as living sacrifices that you might discover what is the good and pleasing will of the Lord. What pleases him. Not what you find pleasurable, though you will find blessing when you please him. 
Paul states this to the Thessalonians in an encouraging way. You're already doing it, but keep on. But he also says it in an authoritative way. He says, I, I urge you in the Lord Jesus. He, he's using the Lord's name to invoke authority here. And what he gives us here, and what the scriptures give us, because this is the Holy Spirit speaking through Paul, is not merely advice. They are commands. Some of us need to get over that. We don't even like listening to advi advice, let alone a command. But when the scripture says, I command you, when Jesus says, I give you a new commandment, our ears go up. Or maybe our fur goes up, I don't know. But we need to get this straight. The Lord has every bit of authority to command us. He is our Lord. Yes. These are the commands that he gives us. People talk about alternative ways to live, don't they? Everybody's got an alternative way to live. The fact is they just join another group. You know, even people who kind of, you know, choose to express their sexuality in this way. I'm being mean. No, you're not. You just joined another group. That's all you've done. There's a group already with that name. They talk about alternative ways to live, but the Bible speaks of only two ways to live. There's the way to life, which is loving, serving, and obeying the Lord or whatever else you choose instead, which is actually not a way to life, it's a way to death. What some people boast in, their preferred way of life, is not actually life, it's death. In Deuteronomy 30, there are Moses' pretty much last words to Israel. I'm going to read it to you, but there's a few headlines up on the screen. This command that I give you today is certainly not too difficult or beyond your reach, but it, it's not up in heaven so that you have to ask who will go up to heaven, get it for us, and proclaim it to us so that we follow it. It's not across the sea so that you have to ask who will cross the sea, get it for us, and proclaim it to us so we may follow it. This message is near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart so that you may follow it. He says, See today I have set before you life and prosperity, death and adversity. For I am commanding you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, which is why this idea of walk comes, and to keep his commands, statutes and ordinances, so that you may live and multiply, and the Lord your God may bless you in the land you're entering to possess. But if your heart turns away and you, are, you do not listen, and you're led astray to bow down to other gods and worship them, I tell you today that you will certainly perish and, I, and will not live long in the land you're entering to possess across the Jordan. I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Choose life so that you and your descendants may live. Love the Lord your God. Obey him. Remain faithful to him. Now get this. For he is your life. Paul quotes that in this way. Christ is our life. He is your life. And he will proclaim, prolong sorry, your life in the land the Lord swore to give to your fathers and sons. The life of faith and obedience to God is real life. The alternative, every alternative, is death. If you're following the Bible reading plan with us, you'll have been reading waste, uh, uh, the wisdom of Proverbs these last two weeks. 
The adulteress in chapter 7, whose house seems to be a house of pleasure, but actually it's the place of death. It's where the grave is opening to you. And then there's wisdom, who's pictured there as a woman, although the, 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 this woman is pictured as doing things that Jesus did. It's interesting, God, they're mixing the male and female. In chapter 9, wisdom calls out to us and offers us foolish people. Come here, I've got wisdom for you. I've got life for you. This is a house of life, not of death. Now, I'm not overstating this life and death issue. I'm not, not overemphasizing it because Jesus himself tells us in John 5 that we are dead until we hear the gospel, his voice through the gospel, and we receive new life. We're dead. There's an hour now when dead people are hearing the gospel and are coming to life in Jesus. Being born again is not just being, having one life and starting a new life. No, it's being dead and being made alive. It's a resurrection. Being born of God. Let me put that down. I'm sure I'm not going to knock it off. Paul writes the same thing about this life and death issue in Romans, in Corinthians, in Ephesians, Colossians. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. The man who is naturally minded is dead. The man who is minded by the Spirit has got life. There's this contrast going on again and again and again. Without God, you're dead. Writing to Timothy, Paul says that a widow could equally be applied to anyone who forsakes faith for sexual pleasure is dead even while they live. Science defines human life as a number of things, you know. Uh, it's your heart beating, your breathing, your brain is active. But how can you be really alive if you're cut off from the Father, the creator of life? From Jesus the Son, the Lord of life, and from the Holy Spirit, the giver of life. You don't really have life if you're not alive in God. And that phrase of Moses, he is your life. So what Paul writes here is not advice, it's commands, because by these commands we will live, we will have life. It's what the Lord Jesus either spoke himself and is being reinterpreted and reapplied, or the Spirit gave it to the apostles as from the Lord Jesus. It's the word of the Lord. And you know what? We are accountable to the word of the Lord. To keep it. To do it. Jesus talked about, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. You'll do what I ask of you. John says in his letters that it's a sign and evidence of the fact you are born of God, that you keep his commandments. So what follows in Thessalonians are some of these commands as to how we should live and please God. And they're set out in three areas, starting 1 Thessalonians 4, continuing to chapter 5. Those three areas are this. Number one, how we handle ourselves. How we deal with ourselves. Our physical, emotional beings. Mental beings, I should say. Number two, how we relate to other people. Specifically and especially one another, our fellow Christians how we connect with others, and how we conduct ourselves with others. And thirdly, how we relate to God. Into both in worship and then in receiving his word. So how we handle ourselves, first of all. For this is God's will, your sanctification. It's a word we'll come back to in a couple of weeks' time when I preach again. Sanctification. God's will is our sanctification. That we who have been set apart to be his holy ones, and he calls us his holy ones, learn to live as his holy ones. Sanctification. 
not just by self-effort, by the empowering presence and work of the Holy Spirit, who is the sanctifying spirit. That you abstain from sexual immorality. How do you define sexual immorality? The Bible defines it. God tells us what is moral and immoral in terms of human sexual behavior. So that each of you knows how to control his own body in sanctification and honor. To have self-control, self-discipline. That applies not only in, 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 in sexual matters, but it, in terms of eating, drinking, resting, that you know when enough is enough, you know how to be disciplined and self-controlled. One of the things the Holy Spirit gives us is a sound mind and self-control. Uh, I stopped there, didn't I? How to control your own body in sanctification and honor, not with lustful desires like the Gentiles who don't know God. And by the way, the Gentile world in the time of Paul was famous for its sexual practices and perversions and immorality. There's nothing new under the sun, you know that, don't you? People think, oh, the world's getting worse. It's becoming a lot more like ancient Rome, actually. This means one must not transgress another and defraud his brother in this matter. And he's talking about adultery here and taking someone else's way. Because the Lord is an avenger of all these offenses, as we also told, previously told and warned you. For God has not called us to impurity, but to sanctification. Therefore, the person who rejects this does not reject man, but God who also gives you his Holy Spirit. People today excuse all kinds of sexual behavior on the basis of love. Oh, it's, it doesn't matter who you love so long as you love, you know. Uh, what they call love, the Bible calls lust. It's merely sexual appetite and pleasure. Christians, those who wish to live and please God, are to be self-controlled in all our appetites, all our physical and emotional appetites. Food, drink, rest, sexual desire. We're to control our bodies, not to be ruled by them. And for us Christians, I'll say it again, the only good and right expression of sexual desire is between one man and one woman in the covenant of marriage. Our societies open the gates to anything and everything in the matters of gender and sexual identity and behavior. But at Lighthouse, we will continue to uphold the truth of God's word on these matters. God's word defines sexual morality for all time. The more people please themselves, the more they sooner or later lose themselves. To live to please God is to engage in life for its true and joy-filled purpose, to find out what we were made for. Go and read John's Gospel and see how the Lord Jesus invites us to receive life in him and from him and enjoy peace and joy in him through doing what he tells us, yeah. keeping his commands. Yeah. The 21st century Christians, by the way, who claim that they can have salvation and love and joy in God through the Holy Spirit, and yet reject biblical sexual morality, that is to say the moral law of God, are deceived. If you reject God's moral parameters, you reject Him. There it is in Thessalonians. He who rejects this doesn't reject man, but God. Who gives you His Holy Spirit. God's will is our sanctification. He's not called us to impurity, but to holiness. This is our true and best outcome. The best thing for us in this life is to live and please God and to live within His parameters. 
Let's go back to 2 Thessalonians 2. We must always thank God for your brothers loved by the Lord because from the beginning, God has chosen you before you were born, before you were made, for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and through belief in the truth. Notice how the Spirit works through God's Word, through the truth. He called you to this through our gospel so that you might obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brothers, stand firm. And hold to the traditions. That just means teachings. We're not talking about Roman Catholic traditions or Anglican traditions. This is biblical, gospel, apostolic teaching. You were taught either by our message or by our letter. The Holy Spirit works in us through belief in the truth. We need to receive and believe the truth. And He, the Spirit, will lead us to walk and please God. Growing in sanctification. But there will be little or no growth in godliness unless we engage with God through his word, unless we engage with scripture. We'll be, remain small and stunted. The Holy Spirit who inspired scripture works in and through scripture to produce godliness, sanctification, and honor in us. Let me take a moment here to point out something to you about this covenant of grace in which we now stand. Because people seem to have this kind of, you know, I've often lampooned this idea, thank you, Jesus, here's my ticket to heaven, see you. You know, I'm a Christian now, so it doesn't matter what I do, it doesn't matter where I go. Because I'm, I'm, I'm saved. We have received God's mercy without condition on our part, but because our Lord Jesus is our sacrifice and Savior. But we are now not just objects of God's mercy and grace. We've been given identity. We've been given purpose. We are made children in his family. We are made servants and co-workers in his kingdom. We are responsible beings. And in the new covenant, what the Lord commands us, he empowers us to do by his grace. So here's the thing, my friends. How we live and behave as Christians really matters. It is, it is very, very important. For God's honor, for our blessing, for the wit our witness to the world, how we live and behave as Christians really matters. The practical instructions taught to us here of obedience and righteousness have multi-points, but they're really one whole. They sum up what it is for us to live and please God. One life lived as a Christian. This faith is not a hobby. It's not a few hours spent during each week away from normal life. You know, I do normal life, then I go to church. No, 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 no. God, help us. Living for Christ should be our normal life. 24-7. Sunday's our time of particular input and worship and refreshing. But we go and live this life the rest of the week. Our life is in the Lord. He is our life. Moses prophesied it. Paul declares it. We, Jesus talked about it again and again and again. Live in him. Live in him. Remain in him. We live in him and for him and he lives in us. Christ is our life. Amen. So first of all, how we conduct ourselves. Sexual, sexually, but also in other ways as well. Self-discipline, focused people. We're living for purpose. We're not going to mess around with stuff that takes us away from God's purpose. And this wonderful identity of his children and his servants and his co-workers that he's given us. Secondly, 
how we relate to one another, and then to the world. I want you to notice that everything that's said here in Thessalonians was not written to a guy called Demas or a guy called, called, called Lucas. It was written to the church. For decades, if not centuries, most of the Bible's been read by individuals as if God wrote everything to them. You know? Now, David, here's your word for today. Oh, yes, thank you, Father. Now, I'm not, I'm not dismissing the fact that God speaks to you and, and fathers you and the Holy Spirit corrects you and disciples you. But these things are written to a community, to a fellowship, to a congregation, to a group of people who are going to work these things out together. And here is how we relate, relate to one another. About brotherly love. That's Philadelphia in Greek. There's a city, in, well actually there's a place in, uh, in, in, um, in, in the North Somerset called Philadelphia. It's on the way through to my, my aunt and uncle's farm. <laughs> so I know that place, I've driven through it many times. Philadelphia. The place of brotherly love. That includes sisters, you understand that, don't you? He says, you don't need to be right you about that because you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. In fact, you're doing this towards all the brothers in the entire region of Macedonia. They're going way beyond their town of Thessalonica to the region around them, spreading this fellowship, this community, this mutual care and concern and encouragement. But we encourage you, brothers. Again, Paul speaking encouragingly. You're doing it, but keep doing it. Do so even more. Seek to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, to work with your own hands as we commanded you. Notice that? Not as we advised you. This is a command. It has the authority of Christ behind it. So that you may walk properly in the presence of outsiders. The way we live and conduct ourselves really matters because the world is watching and looking for evidence that what we talk about has some validity, has some power has some impact, and we will not be dependent on anyone. Then chapter 4 goes on into this teaching about the second coming of Jesus, his parousia, and then in chapter 5 he goes back straight into these practical teachings again. So let's go there, cutting out a bit of notes and moving on. Chapter 5, verse 12. Now we ask you, brothers, to give recognition to those who labor among you and lead you in the Lord and admonish you, to regard them very highly in love because of their work, and be at peace among yourselves. So in this relating to one another, Paul, first of all, after generally talking about how we have brotherly love and we live as a community and we share with one another, he says, now, first of all, remember those who lead you and who teach you and honor them. This recognition or honor includes paying well those who lead well. Pay well those who lead well. Those two words belong together. Okay. Here's Paul writing to Timothy. The elders who are good leaders should be considered worthy of an ample honorarium. That's pay. <laughs> it's a posh Latin word. I don't know why they put that one there. Especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, and then he quotes the Old Testament, then he quotes Jesus. Do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain, Old Testament. And Jesus said, the worker is worthy of his wages. Peace among the saints depends more than you might think upon how they relate to and treat their leaders. People think it, it's okay to, you know, 
back chat and criticize. What it, no, no, no. No, it isn't. Do you know why? Because the way you relate to those who have authority over you, that's connected to the peace you enjoy. It's clear here. Now, Paul's probably picking up on something that was happening in Thessalonica and he's correcting it. But you will not enjoy the blessing you should if you don't relate well to those who lead you. If you want peace in your family, keep peace within God's family. The work of encouraging and warning and strengthening the saints is, of course, you know, something the elders do. But it's not just their responsibility as leaders. Paul goes on to say, we're all charged with this. We exhort you, brothers. Now, this is not the elders. This is the brothers. This is the whole fellowship. Warn those who are, the best translation there is disorderly. They are order, ain't they? That was very bad, wasn't it? Shall I do some posh voices instead today for a change? They're right, they're right out of order, those people. <laughs> Comfort the discouraged. Those who've lost hope. And bear in mind, Christians were dying and their relatives were warning them and some of these false teachers were telling them, oh, they, they won't see the resurrection then because they weren't alive when Jesus came. That's very discouraging, isn't it? Or Jesus has come and we missed it. Oh, that's really encouraging, that one. Comfort the discouraged. How, listen, every one of us gets a beating up from life from time to time. We need to comfort us. Comfort, by the way, is not, oh, it's, it's all right, they're there. It's, come on! Right? It's a picking up. It's a bear hug. It's a standing you back on your feet again. Comfort in Old English means to strengthen, not to go, oh, there, 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 never mind. It's a strong word. Pick them up, stand them up, put some life back into them. Comfort the discouraged. Help the weak. Those who struggle, they're always up and down. Be patient with everyone. Those are the duties of every one of us. Warn those who are out of order. They've departed from right, right living and, and they're dishonoring God and the gospel. Warn them. You know, rebuke them. Strengthen the discouraged. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. See to it that no one repays evil for evil to anyone, Christian or non-Christian. Vengeance is his. We don't do that stuff. We practice forgiveness and leave vengeance to God. See to it that no one repays evil for evil, but always pursue what is good for one another. That's within the family of God and for all. Pursue the good of your brothers and sisters and actually everyone else as well. Let me summarize these as a list for you. Okay, this is dealing with one another, how we relate to one another. Dunham is a list. Paul, Paul writes a list in a minute, but here's a, I've turned this into a list. Love one another. One scripture says, with a pure heart, fervently. Seek to lead a quiet life, mind your own business, work with your own hands. Walk properly in the presence of outsiders. Don't be dependent on anyone. Give recognition to those who are labor among you and lead you in the Lord and admonish you. That means they tell you off sometimes as well, by the way. Regard them very highly in love because of the work. Be at peace among yourselves. That's connected to how you relate to leadership and then how you relate to one another. Warn those who are out of order. 
Comfort the discouraged. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. See to it no one repays evil for evil to anyone and so on. And the result of doing those things is this word. Peace. That word repeats through this whole passage of Scripture. 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5 and bits of 2 Thessalonians. Peace. The God of peace. May you know peace. Now part of that is we pursue peace. We do the things that produce peace, that maintain peace. We can't make peace happen. That's a sovereign act of God. The work of God amongst us, in our hearts and amongst us. But when we see something that's disturbing the peace, we deal with it. Because it's our duty to maintain the unity of the bond of peace in the community of God. To maintain it. To say, this is not helping peace here. We've got to deal with this. We're going to confront it. We're going to, we're going to take a broom to this. We're going to sweep it out the door. To live like this, to con- keep these commands, we need to connect with one another. Let me say again, more often than on a Sunday morning. We need to share in life and faith Encourage and pray for one another, teach and correct one another, and those are all one another issues. That's not just an ideal for us, it's the life we're called to. It's how we get to live the life that we we should be doing. Peace is the outcome. We're pursuing peace. Then how we relate to the Lord together. Now here's one of the places Paul writes in the list. He writes short sentences. Dum, 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 dum. He quite often does that. Other times he writes poems. And I've come to the conclusion that they weren't necessarily hymns. Paul just, dropped, just starts writing poetry sometimes. The guy was a genius, man. Except he was guided by an even greater genius called the Holy Spirit. Here's the list. Rejoice always. Now that's shorthand for rejoice in the Lord. Lord. Yes. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice always. Pray constantly. Give thanks in everything. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Now those three commands there, one one, uh, commentator back in the 1890s, James Denny, calls those the standing orders of the gospel. As soldiers of Christ, those are our standing orders. Three things we do every day of our lives. Just keep on doing them. Rejoice in the Lord. Pray constantly. Give thanks in everything. Now, bear in mind just to mention that that doesn't say give thanks for everything. The fact your car's, car's packed up and needs to be scrapped is not something to say, oh, thank God for that. Well, it's going to cost you money, isn't it? And it's got to get a different one or a better one. No, but we give God thanks in all circumstances that he's helping us, he's going to help us to work through it. He, we, we ask for advice and we, dip, we do what he shows us to do. So we're giving thanks to God that we're still in his hands. We're still objects of his mercy. We're still his dear children, even though this stuff is going wrong. We give thanks in all circumstances, but we certainly did give, give thanks for all circumstances. Some of them are not nice. Some of them are not good. But we nevertheless can give thanks to God for his continuing mercy and grace. Paul elsewhere writes to Philippians and Colossians about rejoicing, about praying. Um, let me do the Philippians one on praying. Don't worry about everything, anything. In everything, through prayer and petition, that's making requests, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses every thought, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. Now, you, you look, I look at things like that and think, oh, why that order? Rejoice, pray, give thanks. 
if I was making that up and if I was writing that, I might talk about praying first and then giving thanks and then rejoicing. But, you know, everything in Scripture is inspired. That order is inspired. We pray in between rejoicing and thanksgiving. You can focus on praying to such an extent that you are an unrejoicing and unthankful person. You just pray, 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 ask, 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 and then you start to get resentful because not everything you think you've asked for is being answered. We are to pray with thanksgiving and pray with rejoicing. It's the mix. It's a sandwich. It all mixes together. And it's all three constitute what we call worship. You see, we sing songs on Sunday. Songs are how we express worship, but songs are not in themselves worship. You might sing a song, but if your heart is not rejoicing and praying and giving thanks, you're not worshipping, you're singing a song. I'm sorry if that trod on somebody's toe. But we could stand here on Sundays and just sing songs, or we could be worshipping. If we're worshipping, we are rejoicing, we're giving thanks, we're asking of Him. That's worship. It's what we're doing from our hearts, not just because the words are on the screen. So this is together. You can rejoice and give thanks and pray on your own. Of course you can, but there's, there's greater benefit in doing it together. Jesus says, we're two or three met together and, 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 and ask of me something. And, you know, I, do you understand there's more authority in things we do together than things we don't run? Do you understand that? Two or three meeting and praying together and agreeing together that they're asking God for something? That has an authority. It's heard in heaven. So this is what worship consists of. How we relate to God. Then, how we listen to God. These 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 to 21. I know I'm skipping bits of notes, but I'm careful with that. Don't stifle the spirit. Now some versions say don't put out the spirit's fire, but the word fire isn't there in the original Greek and that's kind of pushing it a bit far. Because uh, fire is not the only way to think of the Spirit. Um, it's one of the ways to think of the Holy Spirit, but it's not the only way. So let's, let's put that aside. Don't stifle the Spirit. Don't resist Him. Don't dumb Him down. Don't despise prophecies, words of prophecy, messages of prophecy. But test all things. Hold on to what is good. Now you say, well, that doesn't mention... Bible reading and preaching. No, it doesn't because there's other scriptures where it does. Paul, Paul himself elsewhere commands that scriptures be read and be taught and be explained and preached. And in his letters to Timothy and Titus, who were Christian leaders, preachers, teachers, he commands them, read the word publicly, preach the word. So um, this is not saying there's no place for preaching and teaching and scripture, because there is. But this is everyone. Paul is talking to everyone here. We may all, by God's grace and by His Spirit, prophesy. At various times, we may bring a word to, to a group of people or to an individual. We are all open to do that, yes? yes. If you're filled with the Spirit, you may all prophesy. Yes. So this is talking to everyone, not just those who are called to preach and teach. Don't stifle the Spirit. Don't switch off from listening to God being ready to hear from God. But at the same time, not everything that people prophesy is good. Oh, did he say that? Yes, I just did. 
You know, some of it, some prophesying sounds just like, has anybody ever read one of those astrology columns in the papers? Maybe before you were Christian. Okay, we'll let you know. They kind of run like this. This is the way they run, those astrology columns. You, you know, if you, please don't, don't say, David advised me to read my astrology column. I didn't do that. They kind of go like this. You may encounter some opportunities today. If you're brave, you will take them. But if you don't, you may regret it. People go, wow! That is true all the time. It's true every day of your life. These people write these things that sound so clever and sound so wise, and almost every one of them you could go, yeah, 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 yeah. That's always true. Not because you're Aquarius. Now, sadly, some prophesying is a bit like that. It's a nice thought. It doesn't mean any harm, and it probably doesn't do any harm. But, you know, Scripture talks about weighing prophecy, you know. And some prophecy goes, whoa! And some goes, let it fly away. Yeah? It's lightweight. Just let it go. Yeah? What lands with weight, we need to do something with. What has no weight in it, you can let go and let, forget it. Just let the wind carry it away. Unless it's out of order, and we'll talk about testing prophecy in a minute, unless it's really out of order, in which case we need to correct it. You know, someone like Colin or myself, an elder, or someone who's responsible in a small group, would I say, hold on a second, hold on a second, that's, that's not what Scripture says. So we're not going to put that aside. We're not going to take that one on. Right. We're to test prophetic Scriptures. Test them, hold on to what is good. Hold on to what is good might belong to that or to the next bit. Right? We'll do it both ways, all right? Since I can't make up my mind and no one can help me on that one, we'll do it both ways. Corinthians 14, massive chapter on how we handle the gifts of the Spirit in the local church. He says two or three prophets, that's people bringing prophecies, should speak and the others should evaluate. Other people who know what this is about and understand prophecy should evaluate. You know? We should judge. Yeah, yeah, I believe God's saying something to us there. I've been in meetings where they've been well-led prayer meetings and there's a lot of prophesying going on. And somebody's taken responsibility for standing up at a certain point and saying, okay, God's saying this to us. And they've picked on this one and that one and maybe that one that's been shared and they've ignored the rest. That is good. Well, I was one of the people who was ignored. Tough. Because someone's practiced discernment and said, listen, there's a theme here. God's saying this to us. Now let's pray. Let's, let's come back to prayer and pray this through. Because God has just been saying this to us. And they've ignored a couple of other things that were said. They've weighed it. They haven't gone and said, that was rubbish what you just said. They've just let it go. To apply and respond to what they have weighed and found useful and helpful and applicable. Here's five tests from good old John Stott. You can't read them up there, really, it's too vague, but they're in the notes. Five tests that John Stott says, how to test prophetic words. Number one, does this agree with the plain truth of Scripture? Or does it go beyond Scripture, or does it seek to interpret Scripture? Does this agree with the plain truth of Scripture? Number two, does this honor the person of the, G of the Lord Jesus Christ? His true humanity, his true deity, does it, does, it, does it diminish him in some way or lead us away from him? 
Does this agree to the gospel of God's free and saving grace through Jesus Christ, or is it placing some burden, some demand upon Christians, which is beyond script what the scriptures do? It's trying to order their lives beyond scripture. Does this agree with the gospel of God's free grace? Number four, does the character and behavior of the prophets support their words? Being, being prophetic is not an excuse to be wild and wacky and woolly and weird. I'm a prophetic person. You know? I can behave in strange ways, and you can't criticize me because I'm prophetic. You know? Yes, we will criticize you for being strange. We will tell you to clean your act up. Yeah? Sometimes, you know, somebody might bring something and you think, oh, if that came from someone else, I might be more, you know, like, but, mm, you know. Who we are and how we are is part of the message. Yeah? So, there you go, number four. Number five, this is the one that Paul particularly mentions in Corinthians 14. Does this build up and benefit the body of Christ, the fellowship of saints? Is this upbuilding? Because some people think that they have a role in, in prophetic ministry to keep pulling down. And they quote Jeremiah, who had a task from the Lord to pull down and to pluck and to build. There are some things in preaching and teaching. We need to pull down old ideas that are not real and right. And some of that is what's going on in our society at the moment. We need to pull those things down. These are strongholds of thinking that need to be demolished. But if, 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 if a prophetic ministry is only a demolishing one, that's out of balance. That's way out of balance. Most prophecies should build us up. We should be more encouraged than less. We should be more helped, more strengthened. So there it is again. Don't stifle the spirit. Don't despise prophecies. Test them all. Hold on to what is good. Okay? Now, hold on to what is good might belong to the next phrase, really. But, so let's go there and do it there, shall we, as well. Hold on to what is good. Stay away from every kind of evil. If we are to live and please God, we must seek and pursue what is good and reject what is evil. Basically, friends, we're talking about repentance here, turning away from what is not good, what is not of God. Paul's already written on this earlier. See to it no one repays evil for evil. Pursue what is good for one another and for all. That means we need to understand from Scripture things that God says are good and what is not good. And part of that is not just this, this with this issue and that issue and that issue. Where can I find a commandment that, that, that denies it? You know, if there isn't one, it might be okay. No, that's, that, that's foolish, things like that. We pick up God's values, his principles. And then we take his values and principles, you know, honoring people, not defrauding people, not being deceptive, you know. Uh, seeking to honor him and to, and, and to help and support our, our neighbor, loving our neighbor. So we use those principles to judge issues that don't nece aren't necessarily covered in Scripture. Social media and television and radio aren't mentioned in the Bible, are they? No. But there are principles as to how we should handle those things which we can understand from Scripture. So the idea, if it's not forbidden in the Bible, it's okay for me. That's a silly idea. We've got to practice wisdom and judgment, which is sought from the Holy Spirit through God's Word and then applied in every part of life. Proverbs tells us that, doesn't it? Seek wisdom. With all you're seeking, get wisdom. Many Christians today choose to ignore what the Bible says about any number of things, which is to say we think we're wiser and better than Scripture. 
we think we're kinder than God and better than him. But we should be eager to seek out and do what is good and pleasing to him. We'll come back to the final benedictions, which again come to peace and sanctification another time. But here's where we are today. There's a one overwhelming instruction in what we've looked at today. It's that phrase that stuck out to me, and, and it was, I was right in seeing that it did. Live and please God in yourself, in your relationship with others, in your relating together with others with the Lord. In worship, in receiving his word, including prophecy. Live and please God. The outcome of this way of life is peace. It's peace. So I could say this to you. If you want peace, choose this life. Engage in this life. These scriptures and others in the rest of scripture call us to a life of faith and obedience, to a whole way of life that is life, that leads to eternal life. It's Him being our life. The, the only alternative to that is death. And I felt that like a weight within me this last few days. That today I... I, I okay, let me say, I feel a bit like I'm, I'm kind of standing where Moses stood. Declaring to you that there is a choice between life and death. Life through loving, serving and obeying the Lord. Death through disregarding and obeying Him. Let me ask you, what life have you chosen? What life are you living? Let's pray together, shall we? A few minutes before we break bread and then our young people will rejoin us and we'll be singing our songs to worship, rejoice, give thanks to God at the end. I want to give you a few moments of opportunity here. Because I've asked you a couple of serious questions there. In the words of Moses, choose life that you may live. What is that life? It's loving, knowing, serving, obeying the Lord. You can't strip obedience away from faith. It does not work. Scripture doesn't take you there. Perhaps you, want, you need to take a moment, many of us today, to refocus our priorities. I live for him. My highest priority in life is to please the Lord. It's to please the Lord. Jesus put it this way, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Highest priority, the Lord himself, to be pleasing to him in every way. That's choosing life. The real thing. The great thing. The best thing.
There may be two this morning that you've never even started on this life of faith and obedience because you've never turned yourself over to the hands of the Lord Jesus. He had died so that you might have new life. You need to do a, a, a deal this morning, which is not getting things on your terms. You're coming to him on his terms. You, your old way of life dies now, today, and you begin a new life in him by the supply of his grace, as he promises. He receives all who come to him. So I come to him and say, Lord Jesus, I, I, I give myself to you. All that I've been until today can die, can go right now. Let me have this new life in you. Say it to him. You don't need to say it to me. Make that your prayer, your request in this moment. Now, our Father, we thank you that your word is living and powerful. It separates bone from marrow, even soul from spirit. I pray, Lord, that your word may produce in us a response of love and obedience, faith which is not just believing some things are true, but living them out putting them to practice, growing, maturing, being fruitful in the things that we understand from your word. Lord Jesus, may you be more honoured in us and through us than we have yet known you to be as we give ourselves to the sanctifying work and process of the Holy Spirit who will lead us into the truth, make us more like Jesus, and sweep our lives cleaner and cleaner and cleaner. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.